Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Yeah, I think you have to have the confidence to try things out. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Beacock. Sarah is the CEO of the Nuclear Institute, and she lives in southeast London, where I grew up. And in her spare time, she enjoys wildlife, the garden, and particularly the pond in the garden, and bird watching. So it's lovely to see you, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. That's okay. You're very welcome. Nice to see you, Andrew. And it's lovely to hear a southeast London accent. <laughs> <laughs> So you did. You grew up in South London, uh, as I did. You never know. We might have bumped into each other at some shopping centre or something, and not realised it all those time those years ago. But tell us what you were like as a youngster. Um, oh well, I was really uh, unusual, I think, for for a young uh, child going to school. In that, I was um, I was not the child who was left crying. Uh, on the first day at school, I was actually the child who cried when she t- was told she wasn't going to be allowed to go back until tomorrow. So uh, when I was picked up in the in the afternoon. So yes, that was the, the start to my uh, school days. And for the most part, yeah, I think I, I did like school. I was, uh, um, you know, a middling average child, I think, but I, I worked hard and I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, your teachers must have loved you if you were the one who who wanted to stay. Presumably, you know, you were doing all the right things and throwing yourself into all the lessons and everything. And and I was so tiny as well. I could sit on my um, first teacher's lap, actually, Mrs. Twee, uh, in uh, what was primary school then. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So as you were sort of growing up... um, you loved you loved school. Were you, were you doing any other things sort of outside school that, that kept you busy with your friends and stuff? Yeah, did a lot of um, things like ballet and gymnastics and that kind of thing. Um, later on, I was in the school hockey team, uh, so that that took up a lot of time, a lot of uh, practicing, a lot of rehearsals for um, shows for the, the ballet and tap dancing. So yeah, always out and about somewhere. So then it got serious and exams started coming along and you did O-levels and, and A-levels. Tell us a little bit, bit about how, how that went. Well, I, I was fine really up until O-level. I, I went to an all-girls grammar school um, just on Peckham Rye. So it was a, a lovely school. We had um, just three forms. Uh, it was very, um, you know, in, lots of encouragement and for, from the teachers. Uh, a, a nice mix of, of girls it was quite a multi- multicultural uh, background and uh, up until O-level you know I really liked school got my O-levels uh, went into the sixth form and um, and then my world sort of came to a bit of a grinding halt I think where everything at A-level became much harder and uh, I think a lot of kids that age go through it because, you know, suddenly there's other things to be doing and you want to be out with your friends and 
you know, the, the, you lose the motivation a bit. And I was, I was definitely like that. Yeah, it's, it's a really big jump. I mean, I found that jump from O level to A level uh, actually more difficult than the jump from A level to university. Strangely, I mean, other people find find it, you know, sort of different experience. But for me, it was really hard. Mm. The A levels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And because I did maths as well, we had to go into the um, into the school during the school holidays between the fifth year and sixth form, uh, because, it, you know, the teacher said, oh, it's much too long a, a syllabus. We can't do it all in two years. You've got to come in in the summer holidays. So there's a lot of extra work, much smaller classes, um, which, which was fine. Uh, but I, you know, really started to struggle with, with maths and chemistry, particularly. So, uh, mm. yeah, tough yeah. time. Tough time. Yes, yes. But, but you must have been thinking about what you were going to do after A-levels and, and you, you went into environmental science. So what was your sort of motivation for, for that subject? Yeah, well, my favourite uh, subject. I mean, I, I liked maths, but my favourite subject um, from across the whole of the curriculum was probably geography, you know, things that had uh, field trips and, and that kind of thing I, I really enjoyed. Um, but I didn't see a lot of future in getting a geography degree. You know, you kind of thought, well, it's probably teaching or what else is there? Whereas environmental science, it was very new at the time. I think there were only about five universities in the country doing it, in fact. Uh, and I thought that sounds more like an applied, you know, way of applying your, your geography to, to real life uh, cases so I, I thought well, that sounds you know like the kind of thing I, I would uh, like to be doing um, and my teachers by then had decided I wasn't really going to make the grades to go to university and that I should lower my sights a bit uh, and look at polytechnics so that's what I did and, and there were only again a handful of polytechnics that were doing uh, environmental science at the time of which Plymouth was uh, uh, probably the best one and, and that's the, the one that I chose um, and yeah it was it was a great decision I think because it was doing something new and something different the only downside really to it was that there was no such thing as the environment back in 1984 um, so the jobs were kind of few and far between when it when it came to graduating so uh, that was that was a bit of a challenge but yeah great course and we did geology we did chemistry we did ecology um, yeah it was all sorts of different things amazing yeah 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 you were really ahead of your time when you I I, I couldn't imagine how many environmental science degree courses there are now um so you were really you know on the cutting edge and it sounds like um Plymouth Poly really suited you did you enjoy your time there and what did you learn about yourself yeah it was a fabulous um location uh you're on the coast you're a bit off the beaten track for things like uh, seeing bands and things like that. Not many of them would come down to the far southwest of the country, uh, but it was a lovely environment, really nice, um, uh, you know, group of uh, other students and lecturers and so on. I think probably what I learned most about myself was a lot about living with other people who aren't your family. Um, which at times I confess I was just not good at, you know, I, I was not good at it at all. Um, but it was an experience. It's one of those things that you, you sort of have to 
uh, have to go through. And um, it, it was nice because before that I'd done some traveling. So it was nice to be in one place for, for three years and, and, you know, really get into the subject, get absorbed by the subject. Um, and, and, and find lots of people that had common interests, you know, the environment is a bit like nuclear. You're very passionate about it. And so you all have the same kind of goals and ambitions. Uh, and it was nice to, to be with a group of people like that. So you mentioned traveling and, and you went traveling. You went around Australia and New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. Wow, that must have been amazing. It, it was. In, in fact, uh, you know, part of the reason I did that, I was absolutely sick of studying and exams by the end of the A-levels. And I thought, I have no desire to go and do another three years study. I need to do something else. And my mum, who was absolutely brilliant at things like this, she, she would be the one to, you know, look around at what the options were and encourage me and that kind of thing. So, Two, two great things that worked for me. One was that I had family um, who were uh, living in New Zealand and, and were willing to put up with me. Uh, and the other was whilst I've been trying to do my uh, A-levels, um, I clearly needed extra help with the, with the maths. The maths teacher and I had come to this unwritten agreement that, she, that we wouldn't talk to each other because I couldn't do it and she couldn't help me. So my mum, who was the evening class teacher, she um, asked around amongst the teachers at, at, the, at the evening class. And one of them uh, was a maths teacher and she was willing to take me on as a, an A-level student. So I went to her um, either in the class itself. She's, she's teaching them how to you know, calculate how many tiles to fit on the floor and then we're doing you know, uh, integration, differentiation, um, or in exchange for babysitting. So I used to go to her house and, and, uh, and, and she used to teach me there. Um, and that is what got me through my A-level. But before I took the A-levels, she and her husband, who were both maths teachers, uh, moved to Papua New Guinea uh, to be teachers there. So that's how I got to, to, to go out there as well. So, yeah, I had some friends in Australia and um, I spent most of my time in New Zealand and I worked there. Uh, but I got a few weeks in Australia and a couple of months in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, so, yeah, it was a fantastic experience, unlike you know, anything that, that you've ever come across before. Um, so, yes, so, something that at the time you think, oh, yes, I'll do this all the time. And then, you know, it's it's, it's something you never go back to. So, yeah. <laughs> Life catches <laughs> up with you, doesn't it? It does, it does, yeah. <laughs> so when you, um, you finished your, your degree um, in Plymouth there, um, what were you thinking about next? Because I see you sort of went into the Royal Society of Arts and the Examination Board. Mm. Was that something which you particularly wanted to do? Or was it an advert you saw and I thought, I'll just go for it? Or what, what was it? Well, um, uh, the truth of it is, Andrew, I've, I've mentioned before that there were no jobs in the environment. And 1984 uh, was not a good time for working anywhere. Um, it was a really depressed situation. You know, the job market was very poor. And there weren't many graduates in those days either, but it was a tough market for, for graduates even so. And our teachers had suggested to us, um, uh, why don't you think about taking a secretarial course? And we thought, 
you've just spent three years getting a degree and you're telling us, well, you're telling the girls to go and become secretaries. Anyway, with much sort of gnashing of teeth, I went to do that, went to South East London College. They had a special graduate course um, for, for people wanting to learn uh, typing and shorthand and something new called word processing. Um, and that's what I did for the next six months. It was an intensive six month course. Uh, and I tell you what, it was probably one of the best things I ever did um, because it got me in the door of so many other things. Uh, so that's how I ended up at, at, um, uh, at, at the RSA. And actually I got offered two jobs um, one which would have paid £6,000 and the other one paid 6600 So that's the one I chose. So you were there for a while. Did you learn, what did you sort of learn about yourself in that role, do you think, in terms of what you could excel in or what made you tick or what you were passionate about or what did you learn? I think the thing I mostly learned was absolutely I was made for the world of work. Um, Academia was definitely not me, you know, I was middling at best. Uh, but once I got into the world of work, it was like everything clicked and made sense. And I, I you know, from that, that day to this, I, I became one of those sad people who lives to work, really. So, yeah, I, I just loved everything about it. Everything about it. That's really yeah. good, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, you went from there and then you went into the Chartered Insurance Institute as a senior examiner. So it sounds like you're sort of staying in the world of examinations in one way or another. Was that a natural sort of next step on your career journey? It, it was, yeah. And partly, again, it was circumstances. I'm not good at making decisions. I wait until they're thrust on me. And in that case, the RSA moved up to Coventry. Uh, and, and myself and my partner at the time had just bought our first house. Uh, so the last thing that we wanted to do was relocate. So um, it was a case of, yep, let's find a new job. And uh, that one was asking for experience of all the things that I had done before around exams and things. So, yeah, it, it worked well. And it was a new field for me. Insurance doesn't sound very exciting, but actually... I spent nine years there and it was a fascinating uh, sector to work in. Was it? What were the sort of people you were working with there? Well, it changed an awful lot over that nine years. So at first it was very, you know, very sort of fuddy-duddy and all the directors would have a three-course meal at lunchtime and, uh, you know, silver service dining and all that kind of thing. Um, and of course, the insurance industry was one of those that completely went through a period of change in the uh, early 90s and uh, changed enormously um, with lots of mergers and, and that kind of thing. So uh, there were some you know, tough times, but I think it was a, a great place to um, you know, build some really good friendships and some networks and um, sort of work very much at, at a peer level, I think, with the with our committee members and our, uh, you know, our council and, and that kind of uh, thing. So yes, it was a, it was nice to be able to progress uh, within that job. Yeah. And did you have any sort of? I was sort of look back on that that sort of period in my life, and and there are things that you're having to do for the first time, almost like little scary moments where you think, 
how am I going to cope with this or that or that? Did you have any of those sorts of first time moments where you had to really step up outside your comfort zone? Um, I, th I think I'd done quite a lot of that actually in my first job at the RSA. So I was um, I was managing staff from the age of 20, what was I then, 25, 26, something like that. Um, and also doing presentations to, to groups of teachers and, and that kind of thing. So so they were probably the sort of big moments that you felt like, yes, I'm in, I'm in big school now, you know. And um, uh, I guess with the later jobs, uh, by which time I was sort of, you know, approaching 30, it was much more about what was changing in your personal life. So... Um, by the time I was coming to the end of that time, I was I was uh, pregnant with my second child. My boss was on long term sick leave, so I was managing the department. My mum was very ill with cancer, so there was you know there was a lot of things to cope with in life um, besides what was going on in the workplace. You know the, the workplace you sort of rolled with the punches a bit and 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 you know hoped that you could keep life ticking over in the background it was a very intense period I think and I, and I went through I was one of the first people to start um, working partly from home when my daughter was very young uh, and I worked we, we had these new things called laptops um, and I said look I could take this home and work just as well and they let me do that for a couple of years when she was young um which you know was was again it was you felt like you've got to try these things it might not work it might work it eased the pressure a bit but you know I, I, it was a tough time yeah. yes that, it's a really good um thing you said there about that that first job is often where you, you're being stretched in in your work life as as you said you know giving presentations and things but that period in your late 20s, early 30s through, you know, to maybe 40 sometimes where these other pressures, life pressures come on to you, you know, your family, um, your parents and, 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 and other sort of life events happen, don't they? And, and often we have to think about how we're going to balance all of these things together outside work, but still delivering work. Did you have a way of thinking about that or, a, I mean, clearly pushing for flexibility was was one thing that that seemed to to work for you with the laptop and so on were there other other things that you you did um looking back that would have been a sensible approach to it i i think it was a you know a kind of let's throw all the plates in the air and hope that we can keep them there um you know sometimes you just couldn't plan things i went through about three or four childminders because they kept leaving to do other things you know and then you'd go oh now we've got to start again and or move this one to nursery or or take that one there or this now we've got to find a school you know you just had to adapt on the hoof all the time there wasn't that um that luxury of, of pre-planning really uh had i thought about it i probably wouldn't have had kids at all so it's probably as well that i didn't <laughs> Well, I was just thinking about what you said earlier about you live to work sort of thing. And, and all of a sudden, these, these life events and pressures are coming in and impacting that sort of driver within you, I suppose. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It's not it's not a good thing to, to, to have, I think, if you're a bit sort of work 
focused. Um, you know, you 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 have to try and get the balance back into your life, much much as it's really really hard sometimes. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So let's take you forward a little bit. So um, you then you join the Energy Institute. Uh, you take on a role as International and Professional Affairs Director. Um, what was involved in that role and how was that transition for you? Yeah, again, I mean, this was a huge amount of change in, in, in one organisation. I was there for 15 years, which when you look back, you think that's, you know, one thing I was never going to do was stay longer in a job. I was always going to stay shorter than the previous job. That never worked out. Um, but again, it was partly driven by personal circumstances and partly by the fact that I had the most fantastic CEO there who uh, every time I got a bit bored or sort of said well you know I've done that before and you know I, this is getting a bit you know boring she would just chuck something out else at me to look after you know why don't you look after the events team why don't you take over international and um that's what kept me going for 15 years in that job because there was always a new challenge it was never doing the same job day in day out and because we went through a merger during that time um, and we uh, grew the team quite substantially um, we had a complete sort of rebranding and and sort of refocus on who we were it was a period of just constant change and constant moving forward which was great to be a part of really really good experience yeah really stimulating i imagine it's sort of every every day is different and new things are coming over the horizon all the time which does keep you interested and keeps you stretched as well doesn't yeah, it definitely, definitely yeah 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 and um you're managing your family as that as they're growing up during this uh, this sort of period as well um and you, you sort of progressed in terms of sort of career progression within the energy institute didn't you so they must have seen things in you and, and a, I guess a willingness to take on new responsibilities as they, as they were thrown at you as you, you got bored with other things. So you ended up as skills and capability director at the engine. So what did that role sort of involve? What, what were the, the main areas of focus for you then? Yeah, so I, I looked after sort of various um, uh, departments. So the membership and the um uh, training and education were probably the sort of key departments of that. The international, uh, which when I started there, it didn't really exist. We had a couple of overseas branches, but um, there wasn't a lot of engagement. But then we act actively opened new branches and I was able to recruit staff in those branches. Uh, so that involved a lot of travel overseas, which was quite nice at the time. Um, and uh, I had a good support network uh, at home, which made that possible, which was hugely important. Um, and then latterly, the skills uh, piece was around um, trying, because I also took on the IT um, across the organisation. So it was about matching the sort of digital transformation with the people and how we manage that whole um, bigger sort of uh, communications piece, really, not not doing the comms and marketing side of it, but very much about the um, supporting tools for the, for the staff to, to be able to do their jobs better, basically. So yes, a lot of, uh, a lot of IT stuff. 
<laughs> yeah, no, the IT that, that, that I, I remember in some of the organizations I've worked in, the IT side of things is always the one that people look at and think, I hope they don't give that one to me because it's a world that sort of moves so quickly. If it's not hardware changes, it's software changes. Um, and you can imagine that over the last 18 months with home working and laptops and security and et cetera, it's a, it's a massive challenge, isn't it? Did you, did you find you could just rise to that and, and, and work with others to help on that? I, I think what helped me was um, in a membership role, you have to have a good understanding of, of what your member database looks like. And, if, and as that grows and as that uh, evolves in terms of the services that you offer to members, that really is the key to everything else. Um, so how you deliver your services, how you promote your services, it's all connected uh, to that. How do you make sure that you protect your your market of your members? How do you make sure that you're delivering the services that they need? Um, and that kind of shapes what you need to do. You know, it's it's not a question of deciding yourself. It's about understanding what, what the needs of your members are. Yes, yes. So, so you're providing a service, aren't you? And if you don't know what, and, and you start with, the outcomes I suppose that the members want and then you think okay that's where we want to get to this is the sort of system that can deliver that I guess that's the way it's, it's not the system is is not the end in itself is it no it's well the, and the, two, the two key things are it's very easy to get wrong and even if you don't get it wrong it's a never-ending thing you've got to be evolving all the time absolutely absolutely um and so you then um, became acting CEO of, of the Nuclear Institute while uh, the current CEO was, was on leave. Um, how did you find that? Because all of a sudden, I suppose, everybody's looking to you. Uh, it wasn't too, too bad. To, to be fair, I did it for a year, only whilst my boss at the time was on um, maternity leave. Uh, and she, you know, she was still very much in the background. Um, nobody completely leaves their organisation for, for a year. Um, uh, but she was, you know, she was still there. But it was the sort of day to day running of much of the back office stuff, really. Um, and uh, sort of relationships with, with key uh, people. But, um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was an interesting time to, to you know, uh, learn some new skills really and I think particularly around things like the finances um, which are you know probably the hardest part for anyone to to really get to grips with unless you're an accountant uh, to start with which I most definitely wasn't um, I, I'd done my company secretarial exams but I was much better at the, the law than the accounting um, so yeah it was the ideal way to learn really uh, by, by taking on that role and, and really giving you a great commercial sense of what you need to achieve. You know, even if you're a, a membership body and you're a charity, you still have to think commercially because at the end of the day, all these people are dependent on you and, you know, you have to, you have to um, uh, make it pay for itself. So, yeah, that, mm -hmm. was, uh, that was a useful skill to learn. Very good, very good. And it also then enabled you to take on the role of CEO for the Nuclear Institute, which is what you're doing now. Yes, and I sort of took, took that to, um, 
a step really because I kind of thought if I don't do it now, I was I was in my fifties by then. I thought if I don't do it by now, I never will. Uh, so you know, I should I should do it. And I talked it over with my boss at the time, and she said, "Yep, yeah, you are. You know, definitely ready for it. You should definitely." go for it and uh, and see how it goes so yeah it was um it was a, a you know nerve-wracking decision <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure and we were talking earlier about the different places that you've worked and what the sort of workplace culture was and you were saying in some of the the transitions there wasn't you know it wasn't a big thing but then you sort of said the difference between the energy institute and the nuclear institute was a more significant sort of cultural change uh to get used to so so just say a little bit more about that it, it was i mean i think um the the ei you know had, did have a very different way of working i think it was because our ceo was was you know very much younger than most ceos for, for that role and uh, she'd been doing it since she was about 27 so she had very progressive ideas uh, about the about the organization which when you take those ideas to another organization that isn't quite there yet then it, it can be a bit of a culture shock and I think it's because the industry you know is is quite um quite contained and and quite uh, uh self-reliant you know everybody in the industry knows everybody else it seems and um uh, and there's a, definitely a nuclear way of doing things, and it takes a while to to adjust to that. So, uh, so yeah, I did find it very different at, at first. Um, and th there's a certain sense of wanting to create change and encourage change, but definitely you you learn that you have to bring people along with you because you're not going to create culture change overnight. And uh, that was, yeah, that was a very interesting journey in the early days. So I just want to take take you back, maybe in your your gap year when you're travelling around, you know, between A levels and, and and university. I'm wondering if there's one sort of piece of advice that you feel that you could give your younger self that would help her on her journey. What would it be? Um, well, um, you could say confidence. I mean, I, I'd never actually been a very confident person. I was always very, it was remarked that I was very quiet in class other than chatting too much to my mates, which I think is probably something a lot of us are guilty of. Um, but actually, I did do a few things that, that surprised me at the time and that I, I might not think about, uh, you know, nowadays I mean back then of course you didn't have things like phones I didn't even have a credit card and I remember landing in I lost my train ticket in Australia I remember landing in Papua New Guinea uh, in Port Moresby with only 50 Australian cents to my name and not knowing if I was going to make my connecting flight to the island of New Britain uh, things like that, you know, you just think, wow, you would never dream of doing that sort of thing now. It's just, it's crazy. I might as well have gone to the North Pole, you know, it was, uh, it was really mad. But yeah, I think you have to have the confidence to try things out. One of the, 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 the job I did in, in New Zealand was working in a place called Whitcalls, which was the equivalent of WH Smith's uh, in, in this country. And um, 
it was just you know working behind a till and selling people their paper and stuff like that and then I had a, I got a new boss and and the shop was very run down and he said would you like to run the um the, the paperback books department and I thought yeah that would be great because we had to um all the books in this shop which was about half the shop almost um they were all uh shelved strangely by publisher so if people came in and said oh i want the latest jilly cooper you'd just go do you know who she's published by no just go and look for the book then and i said this is crazy we can't carry on selling books like this so he said well if you want to be in charge of it you run it and i had to take all of the books off the shelf do them by alphabetical order which was the easy part and then tell the um tell the reps they weren't going to get this amount of shelf space but they were going to sell books and eventually i won them around um but that's that was a great feeling when you were 18 you know so um so yeah I, that, that gave me a lot of confidence i think that's good. That's a great example, isn't it? And also it kind of connects in with what you were saying on the, the Energy Institute and I guess the Nuclear Institute now is you're connecting with your members and you're thinking about what they need. And can you, as you said, coming into a bookshop and thinking, oh, yes, I really like Bergman Press. I'll go and look at that part of the bookshop. We'd have to send them around the corner to a different bookshop. It was crazy. <laughs> oh, dear. It's not how to make a living, is it? Anyway, look, that's been absolutely wonderful, Sarah. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. It's been great to chat to you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.